You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. As I talked about last week, to set the stage for this, Jesus himself fuses God's love for us and our love for God with the love we express and receive from each other. Our comprehension of God's unconditional love and amazing grace flows out of our practice of loving the people around us like Jesus. And what we're going to see today as we dive in is what Jesus asks of us, expects of us, is nothing he did not already live out in his own person and life. And I hope that you're going to see that as we read from John chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 5 starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to this man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The Lord forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, for this particular gospel encounter, John tells us it happened at a place called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida, as he mentions, is is an Aramaic word. And it means house of mercy. I don't know if this came to your mind as you heard the name Bethsaida, but one of our perhaps greatest hospitals in the United States in Maryland, Bethesda Naval Hospital, gets its name from this story. Incidentally, something else I should tell you to kind of set the stage, it wasn't until the 19th century that people believed that this was an actual historical location. Many people prior to the 19th century didn't think this was an actual historical place you could find and that the pool that was being referred to here was metaphorical. But then, in the 1940s, an archaeological dig in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem discovered two pools covered by a shelter extending over a large area. And they also unearthed ancient stonework that bore the inscription Bethsaida. All of this, by the way, was found exactly where John tells us it was, near the entrance to the city of Jerusalem, known as then as the Sheep Gate, but known today as the St. Stephen's Gate. And Again, not pushing the Israel pilgrimage, but I've been blessed to see that. And so I want to show you two quick pictures of that. Do you have those slides ready? 
So that, those are the ruins of Bethsaida that are right there, that those archaeologists uncovered. And then the next slide I have for you is, this is a, that right there in the center, the two with the red, red tile around it, that's what it actually looked like back in the day. So that's what Bethsaida looked like. And I want you to kind of have that to hold on to because as we press on, I want you to visualize the scene described by John. I want us to enter into it. So in your mind, you have that as your background. Now picture what John tells us is there. Crowds of sick and hurting people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and others suffering from physical ailments. They lay on the porches surrounding the pool. And we may ask ourselves, why do they come here? Why, why here? And I don't know if you caught this when we were reading it, and if your Bible's still open, you can look at this, but verse 4 is actually not there. You look and there's a 4, but there's no verse, because verse 4 is actually a footnote. And this footnote is from a later biblical scribe who wanted us to know why people were coming here, so he supplemented John's words with his own to address a local legend associated with this pool. So this is an example, by the way, of where you have John's words and then someone who was transcribing the Bible for us said, you know, no one's going to get this, and so they added a footnote, and that's why it's there in your Bible. So here's the local legend. Why were people coming here? The legend at the time was that at this location, at Bethsaida, from time to time, angels would come down and bathe in the pool. And their presence, the presence of angels being there, was perceived by the bubbling, or as the man describes it, the stirring of the water. So it was believed that the first diseased person to enter the pool at the precise moment those waters were stirring would be miraculously healed. Now, the other thing I want to kind of lay, for, lay out for you as you picture this scene that John gives us, I don't know if you have any experience in this, but this is one of those stories that over the years has inspired a lot of artistic renderings. A lot of artists have tried to capture this scene for us. And if you've ever seen any of their work, and I mean no disrespect at all, but for me, even kind of looking at it again, and I'm not going to show you any this morning, because when I looked at much of what I saw, their various imaginings really skew our understanding of this picture. Frankly, they sanitize our conception of this scene that John puts before us. Because really what John is describing here, if you really skip between the verses, what we ought to picture, what we ought to imagine is a much more intimidating and disturbing scene. When John says a great number of people, the literal translation is there were hundreds, think about that, hundreds of desperate people huddled together on the floor, fixated on the waters before them, hoping together, right, but vying against each other for a miracle. This is a place filled with sights, sounds, and smells of pain, of anguish, and let's be honest, disappointment. This is the place, in other words, where you go when the medication isn't working. This is the place you end up when the appointments are over and the doctor says, I've got no more answers for you. I can't do anything else for you. This image that we have in our mind, this scene that John describes for us, is that space of life that those of us who are healthy try really hard to avoid, let alone visit anyone else there. And I, I'm setting this up for you. I want you to, to get there because it's to a place that no one else ever went unless they were sick that Jesus visits. Instead of passing by, Jesus enters into this hospital without walls. He takes it all in. And he notices a man who is, out the, who is without the use of his limbs. Maybe he was born that way. Perhaps he suffered a paralytic stroke. Either way, what we're told is this man has been without the use of his legs, unable to walk on his own for 38 years. 
That's almost four decades of lacking the ability to care for yourself. Do the math, and that's 13,870 days of having to rely on the kindness of others to get around. Jesus, we're told, comes to know all the details about this man's physical condition, and it's unclear in how John writes it. It's unclear whether Jesus briefly asks around about this man or if his insight into this particular situation is more of a spirit-led awareness. Whichever way he comes to know about this man's state of being, Jesus asks him a pointed question, right? Do you want to get well? And in response, you heard it, this man expresses both his desire and his frustration to be made well. He keeps trying to make it into those waters at just the right moment, but someone always gets there before him. Whenever the water moves, he tries to reach it, but there's no one to help him. And if you think about it, seemingly this man was dropped off here by someone, right? Close enough to see the pool of Bethsaida, but still too far away to get into the water. The potential hope offered to this man dangles just out of his reach. He'll never make it on his own. And he believes that there's no one to help him. But Jesus' next words change his life forever, don't they? It's interesting, ignoring the waters of Bethsaida altogether, Jesus tells this unnamed man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And in the blink of an eye, this man's condition goes from being helpless to being healed. He doesn't hesitate in rising up and leaving the pool. He takes his mat with him because he's not coming back. This hasn't been some temporary cure or quick fix. What this man has received is a complete transformation by Jesus. It's something that will continue to reverberate beyond the condition of his legs, changing his mind, his heart, his soul. All this is provided, the man recognizes and responds to this deeper encounter with God in the flesh. And that's the meaning behind the second interaction Jesus has with him at the end of this story, where Jesus finds him in the temple. Jesus isn't making a threat when he tells this man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This isn't Jesus making a threat. Jesus is prompting this man not to squander or reject what he has been given. Something far more than a physical cure, but the opportunity to be not only physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually made whole to experience the full and abundant life for which God created him. There's a little more to this story, as you know. It's kind of funny, hysterical in a tragic sense, that this man hasn't taken more of a few first steps, right? It's been 38 years since this guy's been able to move his legs. He hasn't taken more than a few steps when he runs into trouble with the law, right? The religious leadership stop and question him. What's the problem, officer? The problem is Jesus healed this man on a Saturday, otherwise known and observed by all righteous Jews as the Sabbath. The problem is this man is carrying his mat on the prescribed day of rest. Mind you, not prescribed in the Bible, prescribed by the religious leadership. In the eyes of the law, carrying one's mat is work and therefore a violation of the Sabbath. And you heard how all the rest of this works out. We're not going to linger there, though it, it does beg for some more conversation. We're not going to linger there because our focus this morning, as I told you again in this series, is to look at some of these encounters to step back and reflect upon what we observe, what we learn from Jesus about loving our neighbor. And there's three things that I think we see this morning that I want us to take away. 
Jesus sees, Jesus asks, and Jesus acts. Jesus sees, Jesus asks, Jesus acts. Jesus sees. No one sees this man. You caught that, right? Plagued by paralysis for so many years, probably having been brought back and forth repeatedly to this pool, dropped off, picked up later. It's safe to assume this is someone who has become a regular, right? You know, a permanent fixture in the community, in the neighborhood. And yet everyone just looks right past him. No one sees this man. This guy has become lost in the crowd, right? Even though he's visibly, clearly there day after day, he's become invisible, you know? Think about it. We're never given his name by John. Isn't that interesting? We're never given his name by John. Like so many, this man has become labeled by his condition. If he's known at all, if he's recognized, it's based on his inability to walk. He's the cripple. He's the paralytic. He's the invalid. Even once he's healed, did you notice this? Even once he's healed, he's still labeled. He's the lawbreaker. He's the Sabbath violator. No one even recognizes, by the way, that he's been healed. He's just the guy who's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. This person that no one else seems to notice, Jesus sees. Another thing to think about is in many of the other gospel encounters we look at, it's the other person who initiates, right? Who notices and comes up to Jesus. But this man doesn't approach Jesus. This guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus sees him. Jesus pays attention, observes this man, learns about his situation. Jesus seeks him out. Jesus comes to him. Jesus sees his neighbor. He recognizes him. He learns about him. He approaches him. This may seem like a whole lot of nothing, but let's be honest, in many ways, it's everything, isn't it? How many of us, how many of the people around us just want to be seen? Just want to be seen. We're surrounded by neighbors, you and I. Some of them are doing fine, but some are in great need. And sometimes that need begins with being noticed. In our cocoon culture, we may all live together, sharing the same space, streets, parks, and stores, virtually on Facebook or some other social media platform. We may all live together, but in our cocoon culture, lots of people can easily remain invisible, under the radar, off to the sides, overlooked for years, and not by choice. Many of our neighbors are just longing to be acknowledged rather than looked through or looked past. There are people around us who seek to be known, to be understood. They don't want to be labeled by their suffering or their pain. They want to be seen. They want for someone to come and sit down and look them in the eyes. Not as a disease, not as a diagnosis, but with dignity and respect as a person. My friends, loving our neighbors like Jesus means seeing others, noticing them, recognizing them, learning about them, and approaching them like he did. Whether it's the person who moves in right next door to you or the person who crosses your path for just a moment, we've got to stop and see the person in front of us. 
I mentioned last week, and I still want to put it out to you because it doesn't seem like it's gained any traction, that for Lent, my uh, practice is going to be not giving something up, but taking something on. And it's this idea of loving my neighbor like Jesus, trying to, each day to find some way that I can be very practical in how I love my neighbor. And one post that I put up, I'm, not, I'm trying not to saturate it, but one thing I intentionally did was I, I, I walked my dog on a regular basis in my neighborhood, um, but I said, I'm going to, and I talked to you about not adding something, but just taking what you're doing and let God use it. And so I, that normal walking, I turned into a prayer walk to pray for my neighborhood. And this is, this is, seems ridiculous to me, but I'll share it with you anyway. You know, it was a very powerful experience for me because for the first time in a long time, I walked with my dog without my headphones on. And you know what? When I didn't have my headphones on, I could hear things that were going on in my neighborhood. I could hear people who were talking. People who were talking, and normally when they talk, I just do this, you know, the, you know, the classic, I don't want to be rude, so hey, how's it going? I have no idea what you're saying, but hi. Do you know that when I actually wasn't thinking about all the stuff that I had to do, but when I was praying over each house, praying as I walked down the block, I actually started to notice the people that were in my neighborhood, in my neighborhood, in my neighborhood. And I actually got into conversations with people beyond the cursory wave your hand and say hi. And I actually, for two of my neighbors, and you may think, well, you're the pastor. This should just be like your default. It is not. <laughs> I listened to them and I said, can I pray for you? Thinking, oh man, they're gonna be like, oh, uh, yep, you're the pastor on the block. I knew it, I was waiting for it. I knew there was something going on. And one said, no thank you, be real with you, said, no thank you, but I, but I, but I appreciate that. It was, there was that awkward moment, it was real. <laughs> and the other person said, yeah, I'd love that. <laughs> we have to see the people that God puts in front of us. And that means, guys, we need to get off our phones. We need to take out our earphones. You need to stop staring at your feet and purposefully, stop purposely looking the other way, you know? And that's pretty much what this was, looking the other way. I don't know what you're saying, but hi. Really don't got much more time for you. But hey, we gotta stop, or even worse, acting like that other person isn't there. We have to start looking people in the eyes. See them not for who they appear to be. Approach them, not no matter where they're from or what they look like or what they believe. We have to address them, not by the labels the world puts on them, but recognize and acknowledge in whose image they have been created, just like you and me. Jesus sees. Jesus asks, too. He asks this man, right? He asks this man, and I didn't cut, touch this at all before. He asks this man on the surface what may appear to some of us a very foolish or insensitive question. Do you want to get well? I mean, duh, isn't the answer obvious? After all, isn't that why this guy's here in the first place? It's a fair assumption, but that doesn't mean it's the truth or even the whole story. I mean, Jesus could have entered into this particular situation and immediately taken action, healing this man and then telling him to get up and walk. For me, it's significant that he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't make assumptions about what this man wants or needs. Jesus doesn't figure it's obvious this guy's looking for help. In other words, 
Jesus doesn't just try to fix the problem. Jesus engages the person. He asks this man what he wants. Once again, that may seem like a little thing, but it makes a big difference. Jesus models for us how the people that surround us, our neighbors, as much as they long to be seen, also need to be heard. They want someone to listen to them, to understand what they're going through. And through his asking, did you catch it? Jesus allowed this man to express his pain and his frustration. In the answering of Jesus' question, this man, in a single sentence, narrates his whole story, doesn't he? In one sentence, we hear 38 years of disappointment and hopelessness, of coming back to the same place again and again and getting nowhere. And Jesus listens as this man speaks of always being so close and yet so far away from the help he desired. In asking this question, Jesus also invites this man to be involved in what was going to happen to him. Jesus can help. Jesus will heal him. But this man has to want to get well. He has to be willing to get up and walk. I mean, 40 years is a long time, right? Four decades, 40 years is a long time to remain in a place of despair, in a mindset that life is never going to get better. And it can be easy to remain in that place even when your legs are working again. I mean, let's be honest, this man had made a living, not much of a life, but he'd made a living, nonetheless, out of the habit of being moved around and controlled by the charity of others. To be healed is to be set free to take responsibility for oneself, to get up and go out and live the new life you've been given. Does this man really want to get well? Jesus asks him. He asks his neighbor. He enables him to be heard. He listens to his story. And then he invites him to be involved in the solution. My friends, are we asking our neighbors how we can help them? Loving our neighbors like Jesus means asking others what they need. And oftentimes we don't even think to ask what the other person needs because we assume we already know what's best for them. And even if we think they might disagree or protest what we're about to do, we press on anyway, right? Believing they'll thank us later when they finally come around and see the light. But my friends, when we do all the talking, our neighbors don't get a chance to speak, let alone to be heard. I don't want to open up a can of worms. I don't know where you stand on that. to open up something political here. But we are still reeling from yet another tragedy, the tragedy of the shooting in in Florida. But one of the things that I will say to you is I think it's powerful and I think it's positive that students who have survived the Parkland shooting are wanting to be heard and continue to speak. And the challenge there where we're starting to unravel as a nation is we're starting to, to not listen because we don't like what they have to say. Some of us do, some of us don't, or we don't agree. And so we're, rather than pi- listening, we're picking it apart. Guys, loving our neighbor like Jesus means listening to our neighbor even if we don't like what they have to say, even if we don't agree with what they have to say. It's enabling them to be heard. You know, Jesus asks this man a question, and think about it. Asking a question implies we're willing to listen to the answer. And often, the willingness to listen requires our capacity to bear the pain and frustrations of their story. And in a lot of cases, that's what we're receiving from the Parkland students, aren't we? The pain and frustration. And they're voicing the pain and frustration of many 
who have been where they are. We need to listen. You know, one of the reasons why asking is so important is many of the people around us who are hurting won't ask for help. They don't ask for help. And if you think about it, why don't they ask for help? Because sometimes people don't ask for help because they're embarrassed and ashamed about their situation. Other times people don't ask. They refuse to initiate, to request assistance because they've been rejected so many times before, right? They're not going to ask again. For them, being asked Instead of asking others is, is an indication that maybe someone actually wants to listen, that someone's actually going to help them rather than cut them off or turn them down. Asking means we're willing to listen. Asking also means inviting our neighbors to be involved in the solution. And this is a big one we need to hear this morning because some of us are fixers. Raise your hand if you're a fixer. You know who you are. Fixers, raise your hand. Mark Wardle is the only honest person in this room. All right. If you don't know that you're a fixer, let me define it for you, and maybe you'll, now you'll know. Fixers, if there's a problem, we immediately try to find and apply a solution. You may be in the middle of a sentence telling us, and we're like, this is what you got to do. I can fix that for you. I got it done. Here it is. Fixers, great people, want to change the world, fixing everything one thing at a time. Whether they see or hear about it, if something needs to be addressed, if you're a fixer, your knee-jerk reaction is to get in there and take care of it. And we can be so gung-ho, right? It's not a bad thing. So gung-ho to do something for someone else, we can run right over the other person with our good intentions. And here's the thing. Sometimes what we're offering is not what the other person wants. More than this, for a solution to stick, for it to last, the one to whom it's being applied has to be willing to accept it, to be committed to it. We can't do everything for the one who is in need. To do so, to even do so, to try, that's ambitious, may temporarily help the other person, but it will prevent their full healing. If you were with us last week, that came out acutely in Lieutenant Kenton sharing about the homeless. That we, with our good intentions, say, well, this is what we're going to do to help people who are homeless. This is what we're going to do to fix it. And openly shared that when you talk to some people who are living on the streets, living out of their car, they don't want the help. That we're offering. That's not what they need. You can't, you, there's some steps that only the person in need can take. Jesus couldn't get up and walk for this man. The man had to get up and walk for himself. We can't force our answers on our neighbors. Our neighbors need to be willing to be involved in the solutions we offer to them. Jesus asks, Jesus sees, and finally Jesus acts. Ultimately, that's what he does, right? Having noticed this man, after engaging him through an important question, Jesus acts by healing this man. And this is where we all may go, okay, you had me, now you lost me, right? With a word, 38 years of paralysis is cured and this man can walk again. And we're like, yeah, well, that's Jesus, that's not me. None of us, as far as I know, have miraculously healed another person, enabling them to walk where once they could not. That's like the... The, the, the thing that kind of sti sticks out there for us. Well, I'm just for a second, I'm gonna put aside, this is a conversation for another time, and if I forget, you remind me to bring it up. A conversation for another time about how we shortchange and have this untapped potential of the authority and power of the Holy Spirit given to us. That we don't talk enough, we don't wrestle enough with the reality that God has given us the authority and power of the Holy Spirit because God wishes to heal today. 
Put aside the fact that we need to have a deeper conversation about how much bigger and persistent our prayer life ought to be for that kind of healing to take place. We're going to put that aside, but that's a conversation we need to have. But here's the thing. Here's why we're putting it aside, because the point here is not that we have to miraculously heal all our neighbors in need. When we look at Jesus acting, it's the, the takeaway is not we all need to miraculously heal every person that God puts in front of us. I don't know if you caught this in the story, and it's quite shocking. Jesus didn't physically heal everyone at the pool of Bethsaida. And this is because physical healing, while vital to us, important, physical healing itself is a sign of the ultimate and complete healing we will receive in Christ when we are resurrected from death to everlasting life. Not everyone is healed physically, but we are all healed in that death does not get the last word in our lives, and we will ultimately be free of sickness, of crying, disease, pain, and we will have resurrected bodies we are in Christ. That's the ultimate healing we can all claim. But again, the point here is to act. It means we're not just to feel pity or care within our hearts, we have to do something. Offering up the standard, I'll be praying for you, even if we truly mean it, even if we actually do it, can't always be our only action, church. To love our neighbors like Jesus, we need to do what we can, where we can, where the Lord calls us, and what the Lord enables us to do. Now you may hear that and say, how do I know that? How do I know where God is calling me, what God has given me the ability to do? How do I know that in the midst of the needs that are in front of me? How How do I figure that out? Not coincidentally. The more we see and notice people God places around us, the more we ask and listen to their needs, their stories, the more clearly we realize why the Lord has led us to that person and how we can help them. These things are related. The more we see, the more we ask. God works in the midst of that where all of a sudden it becomes very, very clear how we can help, what we can do, why God has called us into this situation. But we have to be willing to see. We have to be willing to listen, to ask. God will give it to us. Then it's, we have to act. Seeing others, asking them how they're doing in and of themselves are actions we take. Recognize that. Just noticing someone, asking them how they're doing is an action. And, and, And oftentimes, just noticing the other person, listening to them can be enough. All that's needed But sometimes more is needed and more is required of us. Seeing, asking, and acting on behalf of another person, whatever way it goes, takes time and effort, right? And that's a sacrifice for us, time and effort. But my friends, this is the sacrifice of love we are called to make because Jesus makes it for us. And the loving sacrifice of our time and our effort is a divine opportunity to encounter, to see, to hear, to experience, and to share Jesus. So many people, I don't see Jesus in my life. I don't hear the voice of Christ in my life. I don't experience the presence of Christ, and I pray, and I read my Bible, and I come to church every Sunday, and I just am not, I'm not seeing, hearing, experiencing Jesus. Where does Jesus say we will find him? Where does Jesus say, if you want to see me? Where does Jesus say, if you want to hear me? Where does Jesus say, if you want to experience me, you will find me? Not in a pew on Sunday morning. Not in your living room with your Bible open. The presence, the Spirit is there, but Jesus says, that's not where I work and I move. If you want to see me, if you want to know where I am, look amongst the least of these. 
Jesus goes where the needs are. Jesus goes where the people are hurting and suffering. And you don't have to go that far. You just have to have to look within the circle that's around you, the people that God's put in front of you. And if you actually see and ask and listen, you will see and hear and encounter Christ in the very person he's put in front of you. The truth is, loving our neighbor like Jesus is seeing and asking and acting one person at a time. This world is big, but it's really about one person at a time. In this story, again, think about it. Out of all the people who were at the pool, Jesus zeroed in on this one man. Pay attention to Christ in the Gospels, and you'll notice Jesus is always about the one. That's why he shares that amazing story, that parable, right, that kind of rocks us about this shepherd who goes and leaves 99 out of 100 sheep to search for the one sheep that is lost. Hear me, Jesus came for everybody. Jesus came for all. But consistently we see in the gospel, Jesus focuses on the individual. The one in need, the Holy Spirit guides him to and he acts accordingly. My friends, to go and do likewise is to focus on one person at a time. The neighbor that God puts right in front of us. One final detail that I have to bring up to you that we can't overlook in this encounter with Jesus. As he acts is that he helps and heals this guy without any recognition or faith on the part of this man. Did you notice that in the story? This man, right? This man thinks Jesus is going to help him get into the water. He has no idea, none, that he is encountering Jesus, that he's already getting the real stuff, the good stuff, the best, the living water that is Christ. Even though this man has done nothing to deserve it, even though despite the fact this guy doesn't even know his name, Jesus heals him anyway. By the mercy and the grace of God alone, this man is made well. He's enabled and empowered to stand up and walk. My friends, what does that mean? That means loving our neighbor like Jesus means acting to help and heal others without requirement or pre-qualification. We can and we must act on behalf of another person in need regardless of whether they share our faith or even acknowledge Christ. Because here's the thing. If the love we receive from Jesus is unconditional then the love we offer and share with others in the name of Jesus must be without condition. Biblically, there's no litmus test in terms of helping another person in need. If there's a need and we can meet it, if there's a person right in front of us and the Lord has called us to them, we must act like Jesus. We must love like Jesus. Jesus sees, Jesus asks, and Jesus acts to help the people nobody else is helping. The question, church, are we? Are we? Our, our neighbor isn't just the person next door. Our neighbor isn't just the person we like. Our neighbor isn't just the person we agree with. Our neighbor is the person God has placed right in front of us, no matter how different, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how unexpected they might be. So my friends, let us not just see what we want to see. 
May our perspective be changed as we dare to look with the eyes of Christ and notice the ones who have become invisible to everyone else. Let us dare to ask our neighbors to be heard. And may we listen as they share their stories and their pain, inviting them to be involved in the solutions we perceive together. And let us act accordingly. May we do what we can with whatever the Lord has given us without reservation or exception. Because our calling is not to build fences or walls around our neighbors. It is to build bridges to them. And more than any gospel track, more than any four spiritual laws, more than an invitation to church on Sunday or giving them the gift of a Bible or the apologetics conversation we're willing to have, more than any of those things, love, love spoken and enacted like Christ, love like Jesus, is how we authentically and effectively share the way, the truth, and the life that is Christ with others. Amen.